as many of you know, I, I returned from Peru last weekend, and we will be giving a report on that tonight. I hope you'll be here for tonight as we share what God is doing there. What we're finding out is this. We knew that there was idolatry there as we went. Uh, we knew that was a possibility, and we knew there would be some there, but what we're finding is this even further and more blatant than we had, we had even thought. Um, one of the churches in Santa Catalina worships an image. Some, many of you have seen the picture of the, um, the white Jesus. We call him hippie Jesus or table for two Jesus because he's doing this. And uh, you've seen the pictures of this, right? And so they worship that image. What that is, that big statue is a replica of the image that they worship inside their church. Okay, they are, they are blatant bowing down before physical images that they have made with their own hands. Okay, this is the same thing that in Isaiah chapter 44, it condemns it, that, that God says the folly of idolatry. When we cut a piece of wood and in one hand we burn it and use it to cook with it, in the other hand we use it to make something to worship. And so the people there are bowing down before images. But here's the truth. The truth is that we live in the midst of a culture that's not that different. We bow, bow down before idols daily. And, and what we do is we serve, we live in a culture, I shouldn't say we serve, I don't think everybody in this room would identify with this, but we live in a culture that serves itself. We live in a culture that worships me, the individualistic, we're very hedonistic, we want to do whatever makes us happy, whatever brings us joy. Our decisions are based on these things. And so we live in this culture that's constantly applauding and constantly focusing on, on me, 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 and on what I want and what's good for me. And so when we live in the midst of this, we, we observe all of the, the stuff that's thrown at us in advertising, all the commercials, all the movies, all, all the, the ads and newspapers and magazines, and, and as you go shopping, the billboards, everything is focused on me, on what, what's going to be best for Todd. And as I look at that, then I make decisions, okay, if that's best for me, if it's going to promote me, then I will buy that product. If it's going to make me have the greatest life and have all the friends, then I'm going to drive that car. We, we buy vehicles not on practicality and how good they function, but what's going to get us the most friends. Okay, and we, we see this every day. We live this way, and, and it's crept into our own lives. I don't think any of us can sit here and say, I'm totally immune to that. I know I can't. I know a lot of times I make decisions based on very similar things where I'm figuring out what's best for me and what's going to be best for this and this. And, I, and I, a lot of times I center on me. We know the same thing in our churches. Many of our churches, if you don't get something out of it, if it doesn't make me feel good when I leave here, if my sermon today doesn't make you feel good, some people will leave and go, well, that church isn't for me because it didn't make me feel good. Well, I've got news. That's not why we're here. It may be a byproduct, but that's not the purpose of, be, of us being here. And so the question that we're going to ask this morning is this, is, is this focus on me, this individualistic, self-centered focus that we have in America, is that the way God designed us to live? Is that the way God called us to live? And the obvious answer that I think everybody in here, whether you believe it or not, would answer there is no. God did not design us to live in that way. God designed us to live in view of those around us and those after us. He designed us to have an outward focus, to have a ministry mindset, a missions mindset. And so today, we're going to spend time in the second part of that. In the second part of that, that God designed us and has called us to live in light of those coming after us. I want to ask you to turn open to Joshua chapter 4. 
Turn your Bibles to Joshua chapter 4. We'll be reading verses 1 through 7. And while you're doing that, I want to give you a brief background of what's going on here. You know that the, the people have been in the wilderness. They're, they're going, and God gave them the promise. that He said, I will, I will provide for you a land filled with milk and honey. And he sends, Moses sends a group of spies over. And some of you know this story well. He sends a group of spies over to look at the land, to look at the people, and come back and report how they will invade the land. And so the spies come back, and what happens? Half of the spies, all but two of the spies, more than half, all but two of the spies, Joshua and Caleb, report what? Hey, we're not going in there, man. Those guys are this tall. They're like Mark Fothergill. And, I mean, they're huge. You know, we're not messing with them. They're more ripped up than Mark. They're strong. I mean, they are mean looking, okay? And I didn't get Mark's permission, but sorry. But, but, I mean, they're thinking, man, these people are giants, and we are not going into the land. I mean, we will get smashed. And Joshua and Caleb says, no, 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 no. God has promised that land. He has laid it out before us. He's assured us that that land will be ours. Let's go. And who do they listen to? They listen to everybody else, and they don't go. So God punishes them, and he does not allow Moses to lead the people in. And so the, the people wander around, and up, you know, you have the, the transition between Moses and Joshua. Moses dies, and God raises up Joshua as the leader of the people. And Joshua's first command from God is to lead the people across the Jordan River to claim the land. So what does Joshua do? He sends spies again. <laughs> you, you know, you're reading Joshua, and you're thinking, oh, great, here we go again. Man, these people never learn. Joshua sends two spies, and he gives them a specific job. He says, I want you to go over, and specifically, I want you to go to the city of Jericho and find out because we're, <laughs> we're going in, and we're going to take this land. And so they go to Jericho, and who do they encounter? They encounter Rahab, the harlot, right? They go into her house to find shelter and to, to find disguise that people wouldn't be suspicious with someone going into her house. And so they go and they stay there. The people come to seek them out, and Rahab does what? She protects them. And the, she lowers them out and says, Listen, for my protection, please spare me when you come and conquer my city. And they promise her that they will do that. That's very important to remember for a few moments later. They promise that. They go back, they report to Joshua, and Joshua leads the people across. And so we pick up in chapter 4 as they're crossing, as they've just crossed the, the river. Joshua 4, chapter 1. Now when all the nation had finished crossing the Jordan, the Lord spoke to Joshua, saying, Take for yourselves twelve men from the people, one man from each tribe, and command them, saying, Take up for yourselves twelve stones from here out of the middle of the Jordan from the place where the priest's feet are standing firm, and carry them over with you and lay them down in the lodging place where you will lodge tonight. So Joshua called the twelve men whom he had appointed from the sons of Israel, one man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Cross again to the ark of the Lord your God into the middle of the Jordan, and each of you take up a stone on his shoulder according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Israel. Let this be a sign among you so that when your children ask later, saying, what do these stones mean to you? Then you will say to them, Because the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord, when it crossed the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall become a memorial to the sons of Israel forever. We see a very important thing here in this passage. We see God immediately as they are crossing and get to the other side immediately he tells them to do what? He tells them to go get 12 stones, one for each tribe of Israel, and to take it and to erect a memorial. 
Some historians think he, he stacked them one on top of the other and made a really tall 12 stone high memorial. Some would say, no, it was more of a gathering. But nevertheless, this memorial served as a sign to the children to come. And it, it, was, a, it was an obvious sign, one that would cause you to walk by. You're walking in the wilderness and you see stones everywhere, but you see these and the children would stop and say, hey, dad, what is that? Who did that? And, and the dad can stop and say, well, here is what that is. Here's what that is. You see, in, in Hebrew, in verse 7, he talks about being a memorial. In Hebrew, the notion of remembering it, it's more than just, oh, yeah, <laughs> that's right, and moving on. When, when he says set up a memorial that you'd remember what God's done, it's more than just kind of a, oh, man, I almost forgot to do that. Whew, glad I remembered that. It's much deeper than that. It's, it's a remembering with concern. It's loving reflection. And it calls you to action when that is appropriate or necessary. That, that's the memory. That's the memorial it's talking about. It's the same word that's used throughout Scripture. An example of that is in uh, Exodus 12, 14, when it's talking about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It would be used as a memorial for the people to remember how hastily they fled Egypt. And also it came to be a memorial of the presence of evil. Okay, this word is used throughout history or throughout the, the scriptures. And every time it's calling them to remember the works of God, to remember what God had done in their midst. And, and here Joshua was instructed to construct this sign of stones that would be a memorial to the people of what God had done when they crossed the river. And here's the purpose of that. The purpose is what we can't miss. The purpose is profound yet simple that all the children behind them would know what? What God had done. That all the people behind them, all the children, the generations to come, they wouldn't go, man, can you believe how brave mom and dad were? I mean, they, they swam across that river. It was amazing, and here's where they did it. Wow, man, grandma and grandpa, wow, they were great. No, that memorial was to point them to God. So that they would say, here's what God did. And here's how God did it. He parted the Jordan. I mean, we all know about the Red Sea. And obviously that didn't stick in the minds of my grandparents and my forefathers really well. Because then they didn't want to go and conquer the land. But when they did, when Joshua led them across, God did a mighty work. And God brought them through. And here's the works of God. That's the God I serve. That memorial reflects and brings them back to God. Verse 6, when your children ask... Verse 7, a memorial to the sons of Israel for how long? Forever. It's not just something that they do on one occasion and say, hey, listen, this is what happened here. Now let's move on. No, this memorial was served forever, that it would be for generations to come. For generations to come. God gave Joshua the same responsibility he's given all of us. And this goes from children to youth to parents to grandparents to adults without children. We all had the responsibility to pass down the works of God and the truths of God to the people behind us. Some, some in here are 8, 9, 10 years old, and you're thinking, wow, I don't know how I'm going to do that. But as you grow older, you constantly have that in your mind that, you know what, those who are younger than me, I'm going to tell them what God did. And as I get older and as I have children of my own, I'm going to tell them what God did. That students begin marking down and writing and remembering these things that they would tell those behind and they would tell their younger siblings and teach them. But specifically this morning, we see the call upon adults to tell what God has done. David Wells 
says this. He says that the family is the conduit of values from one generation to the next. We must pass our faith down from generation to generation and make memorials, so to speak. And what would it be like families if we had memorials, so to speak, of what God had done, little markers in the life and the history of our family that we can look back on and go, hey, do you remember what, when God did this? Because how easy, you and I know, both know how easy it is to see God do something, to know that God did it, and a year down the road, casually go, oh man, I had forgotten about that. <laughs> I remember that. But what if we set up markers? What if we set some kind of memorial reminder that we could look to our children and say, hey, listen, you know what? You are suffering and going through a rotten time right now at school. But I want to I bring this out. Do you remember? And I don't know what it is. Do you remember this? Look at this picture from last summer when our family went on that mission trip. Do you remember how everything got goofed up? We had the flat tire and nothing went right. But we wound up, if all that had gone right, we wouldn't have been able to do this because God's providence guided us over to here and God showed his power and supplied every need we have. Listen, your life at school may be a wreck today, but I want you to remember that because God's going to do the same thing now. What would happen if we set those things up? We have a calling to do that. Listen to these passages. You may or may not want to turn to them. We'll go through them pretty quick. Listen to Genesis 18, 19. When concerning Abraham, God says this, For I have chosen him so that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Why did he choose him? So that he may command the children and household after him. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 7 something we know well says the jewish shema hear o israel the lord is our god the lord is one you shall love the lord your god with all of your heart with all of your soul with all your might these words which i am commanding you today shall be on your heart now listen to this you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up the scripture reading this morning that ricky read psalm 78 we won't read the whole thing again but listen to this in verse 3 he says he's called him to incline the words of his mouth in verse 3 he says which we have heard and known and who told us our fathers have told us he says we will not conceal them from their children but tell to the generation to come the praises of the lord and his strength and his wondrous works which he has done then down in verse 6 that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born that they may arise and tell them to their children or do you see this generational faith carrying out here in Psalm 78? That not only am I going to tell this to my children, but why am I doing it? Because I want my children to tell their children. And I want their children to tell their children. On and on and on it goes. That they should put their confidence in God and not forget the works of God, but keep His commandments. Psalm 89, 1 through 4. Same, same theme. I will sing to the loving kindness of the Lord forever to all generations i will make your faithfulness known with my mouth to all generations david says i will sing to of, of the loving kindness and the faithfulness of the lord forever and i want to make it known for generations to come what about the genealogies the, those you know our favorite parts of scripture Turn, I, won't, I won't make you turn to 1 Chronicles 1 through 9 and read all the genealogies, primarily because I can't pronounce the names. But here's the thing. Why does God see fit to put all these genealogies in there? Why? 
do they serve a purpose? Is it just for us to struggle through as we do our daily Bible readings and go, great, the next nine days I've got to read genealogies. This is fantastic. No. Is there more to it? Sure there is. God is an intentional and a purposeful and a mighty God, a wise God. Why does he put this in there? Why? Turn to Matthew 1 real quick. We are going to read a genealogy. This is the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1. Why is it important to have genealogies? Listen to this. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. And Ram was the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. And Abijah, the father of Asa. And Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. And Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. And Amon, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shetel, and Shetel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud. Eliud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mat- Mathen. Mathen, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. Just as a side note, you notice in verse 16, he says, Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, instead of the father of Jesus. Why is that there? Why, why is it so important to have the Gospel of Matthew start with the genealogy? It serves as two primary purposes. One is to establish the kingly lineage of Christ. But it also serves another purpose. It, it reminds the people that there's more to their lives than just their lives alone. They're a part of God's greater purpose and plan. They're they're a part of what God has been doing throughout history. The the time that they were in at that moment, when Jesus comes and lives his life and dies on the cross in place of them and raises from the dead, that life and that moment in time does not stand alone. But it's tied to the greater story the meta-narrative, the big picture, the big story of God. You see, they, they knew just like the pilgrims. We talked about in the Truth Project last year, we talked about the pilgrims. What did they see themselves as? 
They saw themselves as stepping stones in God's purpose and plan to perpetuate and carry on the gospel, to see that the gospel was carried out and lived on. They knew that their life would be tough and brief, but they saw the great responsibility of carrying forth and promoting and keeping the gospel truthful and focused on God from generations to come. And the people here would read that and they would understand, you know what, here are stepping stones. They, they understood that it's not just about me, but that it, their lives affected generations to come. They, they knew the story of Rahab. They knew what happened. They knew of her faith, the faith that it took of her standing and hiding those two spies and sending them out. They knew that then 1 Chronicles in 2.11 tells us what? That she marries a man, Salmon or Salma, who becomes the father of who? Boaz. So you see the faith of Rahab and how God uses that and carries it out. They see Boaz. What do they think of? They hear the name Boaz. They see it in that lineage. They see it in the genealogy. And what do they think of? They think of the importance of Boaz carrying out the role of a kinsman redeemer when he marries Ruth. And how God continues to work out his plan. And they see the, key, they, they see the word or the name Josiah. One of my favorites. Because why? Because Josiah comes to the throne at the ripe old age of eight. You know, could you imagine Sidney being the queen or king, an eight-year-old? <laughs> wow, that'd be amazing. And he comes to the throne as a teenager. He'd been on, I think, 12 years, right? Some, somewhere around 10, 12 years. He had reigned, and what happens? They find what? They find the word of God, and the people had completely turned from that. And what do they do? He finds it, and what does he do? He weeps over it. He agonizes he repents, he tears his clothes, he shaves his head, and, and he realizes that they have completely turned their back and neglected God's word. Then he brings about reform, and he calls the people back, and he reads the whole book of the law as the people stand and listen. You talk about reform, a teenager doing this. He says, listen, we have completely turned our back from God. He reads it, and he's broken. And the people read that, and they see, and they praise God for what? he did in the life of Josiah they know the reform they know the importance of those men and women who went before them who carried out and lived out their faith they they understand that and now you and I serve as another stepping stone you and I serve as another stepping stone some of us are well trodden so to speak <laughs> some of us aren't but we serve as a stepping stone to those behind us the question is, will we pass it on? The question is, will we do what God has called us to do? Because page after page of Scripture is filled with admonitions to tell of His greatness and His mighty works from generations to come. The question is, am I doing that? Am I doing it? Or am I so consumed with life and decisions based on me that it's an afterthought for what I pass down to my children? Am I so busy? That's probably more realistic for a lot of us, that we're so busy that we don't take the time to intentionally and diligently teach our children. Are we so busy that we get to the end of the year and go, man, what a year. Whew! I'm worn out. I'm exhausted. I'm so glad summer's here. Maybe we can rest. Not. <laughs> then we go on vacation. We fill it every day. Vacations and camps and business. And it's consumed. We get to the end of summer and go, man. I'm glad for school to start back my kids. You know, and we become so busy. Do, is it just an afterthought? 
have we allowed ourselves to be so busy and so self-centered that we don't focus on what we are imparting to our children for generations to come. God has called us to a generational faith. Not a self-centered, hedonistic, me-focused, egocentric lifestyle. I want to share with you the story of John Patton. Steve Wright documents uh, this, this missionary in his book, Rethink. He, he was born in the 1820s in Scotland. He felt a very strong calling to missions uh, from, from God. He felt like he, he was called to take the gospel to the island of New Hebrides. Hebrides. I don't know. They don't even, it's not called that anymore. Here's what the island was known for. The island was known f- for being filled with savage cannibals. The, the first missionaries to go there were killed, cooked, and eaten. And, and so you can imagine that wasn't number one on the mission trip list at the church. Not everybody said, hey, take me there. Actually, everybody was going, let's go somewhere safer, you know? And so he feels this calling to go, and he goes. After a few months of being there, his wife and son became sick and died. He slept in fear every night. He slept in fear. You know how he slept? He slept in full clothes and shoes. Why? Because he knew at any given night, the natives, the people that lived there, would come after him and he was prepared to run for his life. He didn't sleep with a gun to shoot him. He slept with tennis shoes to run. Listen, listen to this. This is what Patton wrote about his, his youth minister. Thither in the closet daily and oftentimes a day, generally after each meal, we saw our father retire and shut the door. And we children got to understand by a sort of spiritual instinct for the thing was too sacred to be talked about, that prayers were being poured out there for us. As of old by the high priest within the veil of the most holy place, we occasionally heard the pathetic echoes of a trembling voice pleading as if for life. And we learned to slip out and in, past that door on tiptoe, not to disturb that holy colloquy. The outside world might not know, but we knew. Whence came that happy light as of a newborn smile that always was dawning on my father's face. It was a reflection from the divine presence in the consciousness of which he lived. Though everything else in religion were by some unthinkable catastrophe to be swept out of my memory or blotted from my understanding, my soul would wander back to those early scenes and shut itself up once again in that sanctuary closet and hearing still the echoes of those cries to God would hurl back all doubt with the victorious appeal, He walked with God, why not I? As he was preparing to go to the New Hebrides, a concerned church member or acquaintance tried to talk some sense into John. John Patton replied this. He said, I confess to you that if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I'm eaten by cannibals or worms. He soon became overwhelmed by the number of people trying to discourage him from going. People trying to discourage him gently I'm sure from doing what God had called him to do and he was overwhelmed by this his parents his youth ministers once again replied this they wrote him a letter listen to this letter heretofore we feared to bias you up until now we feared to bias you they say but now we must tell you why we praise God for the decision to which you have been led your father's heart was set up being a minister but other claims forced him to give that up When you were given to them, 
your father and mother laid you upon the altar, their firstborn, to be consecrated, if God saw fit, as a missionary of the cross. And it has been their constant prayer that you might be prepared, qualified, and led to this very decision. And we pray with all of our heart that the Lord may accept your offering, long spare you, give you many souls from the heathen world for your hire. This is his journal entry in response. From that moment, every doubt as to my path of duty forever vanished. It was the instruction and the encouragement and the admonition and the prayers and the example of his parents that solidified his faith and his commitment to God's calling on his life to take the gospel to an island of cannibals. His parents took seriously the calling in Scripture to carry out a generational faith that passed down from time in, from, from children to children. They knew that they did not live solely for their comfort and the comfort of their family. Unfortunately, many in America, many parents in America, their goal is to simply provide a better life for their children than they had. I don't know that, I'm not here to say that that's completely wrong. But when that's our sole focus, we miss what God has called us to do. Parents, you cannot miss the influence and responsibility you have. Listen to these two surveys. USA Today conducted a survey finding that 70% of kids say that their parents are the number one influence in their lives. That's a low number. This is, I mean, you know, this is what I do for a living is work with parents and youth. Most statistics are higher than that, but I share the low one for you. 70% and more of students, when they're asked, what's your number one influence? Who's the most important? They say their parents. The super uh, conservative and um, moral MTV asked 13 and 24-year-olds this, what makes you happy? You know what they replied? The number one answer? Spending time with family. It wasn't sports. It wasn't money. It was spending time with family. You cannot overlook the value and the importance you have as a parent, as a family. If our priority is putting them on the ball field above God, we've missed the boat. If our priority is for them to pursue excellence on the ball field for the glory of God that they can reach their team with the gospel, then we're on the right boat. And we send them out and say, you be the best you can be. But you remember that it's not for you. It's for the glory of God. That's the boat we need to be on. That's our calling. That's what we work towards. Parents, I, I meant to get this printed up for you, and I, I ask your forgiveness, I didn't, but if you have time to jot these down in a pen, I, I would encourage you, I, I'll try to email them out to the church, I would encourage you to spend time daily meditating on these seven passages of Scripture. Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9. Psalm 78, 1 through 7. Ephesians 6, 4. Proverbs 1, 
8 through 9. Proverbs 22, 6. Psalm 127, 1 through 4. Colossians 3, 20 to 21. I, I can give you those after the service. Parents, we need to meditate on those scriptures. Uh, students, I, I think it would be wise to do the same so that we know what is our what are your parents called to do in your life? What is their responsibility? What is their calling? It's not a religious habit. Their, their responsibility is not to teach you empty and vain religion. A bunch of do's and don'ts. Their responsibility is to teach you the truth and the power and the love and the magnificence of God. That we would live for his glory. I think in response, there's two questions that we need to ask as we look at this whole idea of a, of a generational faith that we live out. The first thing is this, is do parents bear this responsibility alone? Is it only parents that bear this responsibility? No. We, we see in Titus 2, what does he say? Titus 2 instructs all of the younger, I mean the older members of the church to do what? To teach the younger. He says, older men of the church, you need to teach the younger men to do this. And he carries out a list of things that we need to teach and impart to younger men in the church. All the older women in the church do this and teach this to the younger women in the church. It is not the sole responsibility of the parents. It's the primary responsibility of the parents. The primary responsibility of the parents. Every teenager in here has ideally the primary, primary discipler and spiritual leader is their parent. It's not me as a youth pastor. It's their parent. And so God has called them to impart that. John MacArthur states that Joshua was, was right around the age of 90 when he led the people across the river. Grandparents, I would say you probably have a little more responsibility than to spoil your child. You, you have the responsibility of passing that down from generation to generation. I, I'm sure grandchildren are a blast <laughs> because you can have fun with them and when they're bad, send them home, right? We know that. But you know what? I, I mean, I, my mom and dad are actually here today. I had the blessing of them being here this weekend. I, I hope that my kids learn more from them than... Nana and Papa will buy me a set of Legos at the store. We have that responsibility, that blessing. Moses was 80. I mean, age is not an excuse. I'm sorry. We have that responsibility to pass down to the younger people in our church. Men my age need to be discipled and led by older men who have been there, done that with young children and made wise and godly decisions. The second question I think we need to ask is this, what, what do we teach our children? If we're supposed to pass things down, what do we teach them? We teach them an unwavering obedience to God's calling and will. We teach them of the greatness of God. We teach them of his works and history, of, of the world's need for the gospel. We, we need to teach our children and the young people in our church that, you know, there's a world dying in need of Christ. And Romans 10 says, how will they believe if no one preaches? How will they believe if no one tells them? And how will they tell them if no one is what? Sent. 
send them. Listen, I'm a parent. And I know many of you sit in here and you want God to do great things in the life of your child and you want to see him honored. But the thought of your child being a John Patton scares you to death. And it scares me to death too. But I pray that God would give me the wisdom and the faith to let go at that moment. When God says, Sydney or Braden, you go. And you go to Afghanistan and you share the gospel with those people. I don't know how I'll handle that. But I know with God's grace and the hope of eternal life that I'm going to do all I can just to let them go. And I know some of y'all are in the middle of that right now. As I talk to you, and I know where your student is. And I'm praying that for you. But God has called us to pass his truth and his glory and his love down for generations. And the question for us today is, are we doing it? I want to tell you this. It's not too late. It's not too late. What I do not want is a parent to sit in here and feel guilty today and say, man, I've totally dropped the ball and I'm a loser and I'm a failure and God hates me. It is never too late to focus your life correctly. I praise God for the work that God has done in my dad's life in the last 15 years. And a memorial for me that he does not know about until today probably is the first time that I stood beside him hearing him sing joyfully to the Lord. It is never too late. I don't want you to get the impression that my dad was a bad dad. <laughs> he was a great dad. He's going to whip me and we go home. But he did shift his focus to being number one and focused on God about 15 years ago. And I knew that. And I won't forget it. So I want to challenge you today and ask you, what kind of stepping stone are you? Are you passing your faith from generation to generation? Are you diligently teaching your children? Are you preparing yourself, young adults, for the time when you have children to be able to diligently teach them? Let's go before the Lord together. God, we come to you this morning and we praise you for your mighty works. We praise you for your love and your grace. God, we know that, that parenting is not easy. We know that there's triumphs and there's pitfalls. But God, we know that your grace is sufficient in the midst of all those. And I pray, God, that you would make us a body of believers who equips parents and grandparents in our midst to, to disciple and lead and teach our children. And God, I pray that we would live daily 
with that mindset, a generational mindset, that we know that children are coming behind us. And God, that you would work in our hearts a desire and a longing to teach them more than just how great a ball team is or how to be a good manager or how to get into college or how to score well in the ACT or how to have all your friends like you. God, that we would teach so much more than that. God, we would teach the truths of Scripture to them. In the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We're going to stand.